Welcome to another podcast from the Rotary and Community Service Radio Show, which is now in its 12th year. Our show is heard every Friday between 6 and 8 p.m. on Community Radio Station 94.1 FM 3WBC and is also streamed live on the World Wide Web at www.3wbc.org.au. Now it's my great pleasure to welcome back to the program a wonderful, hard-working humanitarian, the 2017-18 Rotary District Governor of District 9800, Peter Frew. Peter has had many roles in Rotary and has now capped it off by becoming the very respected District Governor. He is leading a district of nearly 3,000 members and as we approach the halfway mark in Peter's year as District Governor, we thought it was about time for an update on his very busy start to this 2017-18 Rotary year. A year in which Peter uh, has been under the auspices of the Rotary International President, whose annual theme is Rotary Making a Difference. Peter, a very warm welcome to the 94.1 FM 3WBC microphone. Thanks Ian, and uh, it's great to be on the show again. I'm really looking forward to it. Well, I know you were some months ago, Peter, and uh, I thought as the time ticked on a little, it it would be good to get your your half-yearly report, if we can call it that. Uh, And as I regularly do on the Rotary shows uh, that I host, uh, we'll really be having two interview segments with Peter. The first will be to get to know Peter, the man, and then in this uh, show, a second chat, uh, I'm going to be asking Peter to give us some insights into his initial aims and special areas of focus in this his year as the Rotary District Governor in this district, District 9800. And importantly, to find out from Peter how he believes the district is tracking. So first of all, Peter, where were you born and was yours a large family? Well, thanks, Ian. Um, I was born in Melbourne, um, although I have lived overseas at various stages in my life. Um, and it was, wasn't a large family by the, by the day. We were, I was one of four children, uh, so I guess the family sizes have decreased over the, over the years. Uh, I have three sisters. They're all still alive, and uh, I have my mother still alive. Well, Peter, it's good to know that you had a very good, nice family unit. You don't have to have eight siblings to be happy in life do you um, uh, uh, do you have any grandchildren I have one grandchild uh, Lachlan who some people who were at the district changeover will uh, recognise he was very proud to be given a chance to wear the uh, chain of office of the district governor for, for a photo oh a rotor actor in the in the offing there <laughs> that's wonderful well my two uh, boys are working on their families I hope yeah. Uh, I'm yet to become a grandfather and it's a great uh, great uh, state to be in. Uh, and Peter, where did you go to school? Yep, I, I was brought up in Pasco Vale. So I, I went to the local Catholic school there, uh, which was in those days Blessed Oliver Plunkett before St Oliver Plunkett was, uh, was uh, you know, uh, given that title by the Pope. So it was a, a nun's uh, Catholic you know, run by the nuns and uh, it was quite an interesting place to go to school. And then after that, I went to a brand new secondary school, uh, Hadfield High School. 
and did you flourish in all those years of primary and secondary school? What, you know, what did you most enjoy about your education? Uh, well, I was always a keen learner, I guess. I, I, my uh, father was an engineer, so I was always interested in the maths and science side of things. But I also enjoyed all the other subjects as much as that. And I also played a lot of sport when I was young. Not, not very good at it, but played a lot of different sports when I was young as well. Well, you were part of it, not like Barry Humphreys, who <laughs> vowed that his great uh, uh, love in life was to avoid sport. What sort of sports did you play? Well, well, it's a bit like everything in life. I've always enjoyed the variety rather than focusing on one thing. And uh, so I, I tried a lot of sports. I, I played squash for a lot, many years. Um, but I also played uh, tennis, I played cricket, not very successfully, uh, and um, and football. I played a few seasons of football as well, but again, I was a bit skinny and uh, small to be much of a footballer. Where did you play your football, Peter? With Pasco Vale. They were in the Essendon District Football League, and I, I played quite well in the under-17s, but when we got to the under-19s, they were all grown men, and they sort of wiped me out. <laughs> There wasn't a recruiting officer there no. from uh, Essendon <laughs> having no. a look at you play. No, no, there wasn't great much to look for there. Well, we can't all be, we can't all be good at but everything. I was it? I was also a runner, so I used to run with East Melbourne Harriers as well. So oh, that was very well known athletics uh, yeah, club. Yeah. Very well known, and, that, and it was quite an amazing golden era, really, because uh, Peter Norman was in the club, um, oh, and uh, you know it was a wonderful uh, you know athlete and a bit of a legend for us young kids to look up to. Oh, was he ever, was mm. he ever. Uh, he, he died recently, didn't he? He did, yeah. And he's, of course, quite famous as the the white guy in the Mexico Olympics uh, in the 200 metre when he, he uh, equaled the world record of running 20 seconds but was beaten by Tommy Smith and... And there was a black power salute that took I place. remember that very clearly on the on the on the podium on the dais yeah. when they were doing that, and he was standing there politely. He was standing there politely, but he people don't realise, but he he was uh, also wearing a badge supporting them. And uh, there's now a statue um, that many people visit that uh, has the the two black Americans who made that statement, uh, which has a vacant space for the second. Uh, for the second position and people get their photo taken there but the, those two men came to Australia while he was still alive to recognise his contribution to the Black Power movement and there's a, a very good movie made before he died. Yes, I do recall that. He was very, very well respected he was. during that uh, era of athletics, I know. And uh, Peter, uh, you went on to tertiary study? Yes, I went to Melbourne University um, uh, and studied engineering, electrical engineering. And in those days, it was sort of four years straight through. Um, I, again, I was uh, sort of very uh, successful in my studies and was asked to stay on for a master's. Uh, of engineering science degree, which I did then. I had joined uh, as a cadet engineer with the, the old Postmaster General's Department, and um, in, that, in that stage, it was a pre-Whitlam era, so you had to bond, you were bonded indentured labour afterwards, that you had to work off five years of uh, that period, but I spent 30 years with them, so I think I worked my uh, time out with them. Well, you uh, did your time yeah. all right with yeah. them. And what roles did you have uh, there at, uh, well, PMD, then Telstra as it became? What yeah, roles did you have? many different ones. Uh, I probably did about nine or ten different roles in that period of time. You know, two to three years would be average for those. And uh, 
early on it was in the technical area although even when I was uh, I think uh, 29 or 30 I'd moved over into the marketing side I did an MBA in that in that period when I was in my 30s uh, at, again at Melbourne Uni and branched out into the business and uh, and management side of things I guess so I had large numbers of staff right through for my last 10 years you know big workforce groups of different parts of Telstra some in the technical field but also I ran the uh, Telstra's call centres, all the uh, 132200 numbers and all of those. So what a huge role you yeah. had. How many staff at any one time did you have about, uh, under your... About 5,000 at that oh, stage, uh, which is about 10% of the workforce at that stage, and in 44 call centres all over Australia. So it was a great period to actually be involved in What that. a massive role. Now, you were based in Melbourne doing that, Peter? Yeah, but a national role. Of course, you travel with it. And I, my uh, aim was to be in call centres two to three days a week. So I would be travelling interstate, not only every week, but possibly twice in a week or away for, say, three days out of the week. Um, a lot traveling. of hard work. And were there call centres in every capital city of Australia? Absolutely. And the big regionals? And the, te- and the territories and regional. So when we ran that, at that stage, we had 44, and they included, say, f- uh, five in Tasmania, um, it included, which included, you know, Launceston as well as Hobart, um, and it included major regional centres like Townsville, uh, Darwin, we had a centre in Darwin, um, multiple in Adelaide and in Perth. So you'd be... And it was really a matter of using the natural time zone differences across Australia to the benefit of customers. So in the uh, evenings, the calls would be diverted to Perth and in the morning, Perth calls would be answered in the East Coast and so on. It's a huge responsibility uh, that you obviously have. And of course, being away so often as I was in my role, uh, it does put a bit of a toll on your private life, but you did manage to... Uh, marry, yep. and I know that you're married to Anne, who is playing a very major role in your life. Uh, uh, and my understanding is that she's also become a Rotarian. Peter. Th- that's right. Well, Anne and I met it when we were still at university, and uh, got married in in my final year. So we we sort of started in the old model a bit earlier than some of the modern day uh, couples, but um, we've been together ever since. And um, We've shared our journey all the way through in the various things that we've done and had a great time along the way. Similar with my Rotary journey, initially it was my thing on a Tuesday night would be to go to Rotary and uh, her night off. But as time evolved, she got to know the people and got to know the projects. And uh, two years ago, she, or just over two years ago, she joined Rotary herself. And we talked about which club to join. And there are pros and cons for couples being in the same club. But at a practical level, it worked for us, so she joined the Baldwin Club, where she knew many people. If you have a harmonious marriage, it can work very well. Uh, <laughs> there may have been some cases in the past where, there, where uh, people want roles in clubs and the partner doesn't necessarily want yeah. the other partner to have that role, so it's interesting, but, but if it's worked, it's worked. And I'd say, look, also my son, at the same year, my son uh, Mark joined uh, the Melbourne Park Club 2015 as a Rotarian, but in that case, he was uh, he was joining perhaps a younger person's club. So my advice for people joining Rotary always is to look around, find a club. As much as the clubs go looking for, for members, um, members have to find a club that is you know suits them, not only by the time of day and the sort of meet, meeting that they run and so on, but also that they find welcoming. So it's more important when people join Rotary that they're happy with being a Rotarian 
then a club has got a particular number of members. We're, we're really trying to encourage a long-term relationship between Rotary and the people that make up Rotary. And Peter, the club that you joined, I know, was Baldwin. Was it the first club you joined? Yeah, I didn't, wasn't looking for Rotary. And uh, this, uh, there are only three ways, Ian, that people join Rotary. I've never had anyone tell me another way. These are the three ways. The traditional way, which is where you um, are tapped on the shoulder by somebody and introduced by somebody who's a Rotarian to their club. This is probably an ideal way, and it was certainly when Rotary is a very exclusive organisation post-Second World War and in a high-growth phase. Uh, only men, but uh, men of, of, of who could make a contribution were invited by their colleagues in. And uh, this that that is still a very good way to join because obviously the person who introduces uh, uh, act as their mentor and there's certain quality control that goes with that, to be honest. The third way that people join is that they walk into clubs. In, in nearly half the people joining Rotary Clubs in, in Australia now find the Rotary Club. And this is... Uh, clubs aren't really necessarily ready for this because that, those people, just like buying a new car, are shopping around. They, they already know they need a car and they're just trying to see what 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 car's going to suit them. The, I was in the in-between category where the club didn't know me, I knew no one in the club, but the club was seeking extra members in certain in a certain designation. And it wasn't by it wasn't by classification, but the way they sought and found me was they asked my accountant, who knew one of the members of the Borwin Club, said, Have you got any clients who have recently retired who might have time for community service. And my accountant gave my name and I was approached by a person in the club who said, "Could I? what do you know about Rotary? Um, would you mind if I came around and talked to you at some stage? And I'd recently retired and was thinking, oh, it's a bit boring, you know, running my own. I was running a consultancy business, but it's a bit boring being running a consultancy business for home. So this might be of interest. So, and the rest is history. I did ask two key questions like, why would I join the Baldwin Rotary Club, you know? And the compelling answer was, well, we organise the Campbell Market. So we have a lot of money for our projects and you'll have to do four Sundays of service on it, but no sausage sizzle. So that was compelling to me. <laughs> and the other one I said, well, why uh, isn't there another Rotary Club between Mount Waverley, where I live, and Baldwin? And they said there are other clubs, but they're not as good as our club. Now, whether that was true or not, it got me over the line. Very and of course, once you, once you join a club, you're a part of the club and you don't want to, you know, to move from that club. You get to know people. Well, obviously, Peter, you're enticed to join the club, but there's got to be something in your makeup that motivates you to make the move. You're in that area, possibly, or close to that club. You knew it had the iconic Camberwell market, but why did you want to become involved? What was your, uh, well, your it's a, personal a time motivation? to pay back, basically. I, I retired the first time in 2002 when I left Telstra and set up my own consulting business. And um, I figured I'd spent 30 years in one employer. That was enough. Um, I then got enticed to go back into full-time work with Hewlett-Packard for a few years. And then it was when I left there in 2006 that I thought, well, I've had enough of corporate life. I've had my good stint and thank you very much. I want to do my own thing and have a what's called a portfolio of activities. In other words, if you're going to go from full-time work, don't think you're going to play golf every day because you'll get pretty bored of it and your body might crack up on you as well. 
but I was I was playing golf once or twice a week, and and I look forward to going back to that after this uh, this role. But it's not everything in your life. You can't switch off, so you have to have other things. And to me, to give back to the community and use your vocational skills is wonderful. Um, and it's something that Rotary does offer people. You can use your skills. In my case, I was very used to uh, working with a wide range of organisations. In many of my roles, were outward focused in, and I dealt with um, uh, you know sorts of everybody from the Senate to you know the 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 crank phone calls that would come into our frontline staff and everybody in between. So I was very used to working in a public environment. So. And the other thing is my consultancy was in change management. And um, if there's one thing Rotary needs at the moment is probably a, a, a path to transition to the tw- you know 21st century. We haven't quite got there yet. I think we should talk about that in the, in the second part of our chat. But I'm uh, fascinated to know that you joined Baldwin. And just a little bit about that club. Yeah. Uh, is there a good mix of backgrounds and gender at, at Baldwin Rotary? There, there is. It was a ma- like a lot of clubs. It, it's a well-established club, so it was male all, all male until women were admitted. And uh, we currently have, I think, about 30% women members, so that's a, not bad for an all-male club that's adapting. I'd like to see it 50-50 for every club in the district, to be honest. And certainly the recruits that are coming in generally are in that mode, so it's a matter of waiting till till recruitment. Um, ends up giving us the 50-50 mix. Um, it is a mixture of people with different backgrounds. It's probably reflective of its catchment area. Although having said that, uh, I did some geography of where members live, and although the epicentre is the is Baldwin Road and Whitehorse Road, um, our members are scattered quite widely because quite often people join a club, and then for family reasons or whatever, they move other locations but still remain members. So we've got members spread out quite widely. Well, it's got a wonderfully, as you've already mentioned, a, a wonderfully iconic activity in the Camberwell market, which I know in the world is one of the, the leading fundraisers. It's a wonderful market yeah. on every Sunday and a great source of revenue, which then generates good deeds. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the Camberwell market historically. Yeah. How long? Historically, well, this it's just celebrated last year, the last Rotary year, the uh, 40th anniversary of the market, and it was set up by a couple of people who went to a conference in Canberra, and they had heard about a sort of a Sunday market activity out at Queanbeyan, which was while they were up there, they went and visited. They came back at that stage. Um, Bourne had only just been chartered out of the Camberwell Club. And the advice for a new club would have been very much to do your own, focus on, on friendship and fellowship for the first couple of years and just do some small local projects before you pick up another another project. And of course, the Campbell uh, Club at that stage was running the massively successful Archer. So um, uh, when they came back with that idea, the, the, uh, the idea was put to the board. It... Uh, uh, Jim Hopper was the, the president at that stage, had to use his casting vote to make the decision that they would go ahead with the market. Oh, was that close? It was, was it? that close. And because it was a big undertaking, but from mm-hmm. the first time the market was run, the fir- they had 50 stalls on the first, the first time, and it was profitable from day one, and it's just gone from strength to strength since then. And people, look, people focus on the money that the market makes, but Tim Costello, who spoke at the 40th, made the point that markets, and your, I know your own club runs a market, are inherently community building 
organisations. Exercises, Exercises. That's where people interact. And if you watch people walk around, um, you know, the range of, of people from different backgrounds that are exchanging, the people walking around with the dogs, the kids, you know, um, admiring not only the goods but also you know the other opportunities that interacting. Are interacting it promotes good community it does it? create yeah. good community and gets people out of their houses on a Sunday morning and it's also a form of recycling if you think about it by having a second hand goods focus essentially it's encouraging people to relinquish things that were, were valuable to them one stage but are more valued to somebody else we see a lot of that and uh, that is so correct and Peter uh, the natural consequence obviously is the funds that the market raises yep. what are some of the local and international uh, support areas that uh, that Camberwell market generates, generates for the Rotary Club of yeah sure well we run a, a in each of the avenue of services as you could imagine the cl- I should have mentioned in the, the club's currently got about 70 members it has been up and down you know 10 members around around that but say with 70 members and you've got uh, in our funds this last year, it was nearly eight hundred thousand dollars of funds to distribute in the year. Oh, wonderful! So it does mean that the projects we do, we do a number of hands-on projects. We have a Box Hill Miniature Railway that we assist. We assist at Eastern with volunteers for Eastern Emergency Relief. Um, it, it, we've also worked in in the past and still do to a certain extent uh, with the servants' community housing and so on. So there are community hands-on activities that the club does but a lot of our projects are ones where we work with other organisations so um, we've supported um, a birthing uh, demonstration uh, equipment that is used by the Box Hill uh, Hospital now you'd say Box Hill Hospital is a big organisation but where we were able to add value to them is that they do a lot of training uh, and they have a very intense environment where they provide a very sophisticated uh, dummies which are replicating childbirth and the doctors and nurses who work in that uh, find it incredibly compelling to actually work in that environment and by practicing in that safe environment they are saving lives in their in their normal practice when they go to do it afterwards so that was an area where we could do it in a, in our international projects we've got a lot of projects uh, in the past and we don't like to continuously stay in one area for a long time. But as you would know, the East Timor or Timor-Lest area has had a long-term support from our district, mainly organised through Bob Glenderman and the Melbourne Club. But the Bourbon Club has worked very closely. And when Darrell Mills was the Rotarian living up there, coordinating as a, as a liaison officer, our club had a five-year contract with Darrell to support his activities in helping clubs throughout Australia and in fact some of the visitors from throughout the world do their good rotary work in there. And we've done other projects such as in Nepal after the earthquake there we managed to arrange uh, shipping in of roofing so that just before the winter set in that area which is very harsh they could rebuild out of the rubble from wonderful the earthquake. Stuff. Wonderful so, stuff. Wonderful projects. Yeah. Oh, just just wonderful. Uh, and I should mention one other iconic one. For the last 12 years, our club's been supporting Indigenous scholarships for uh, people coming from rural areas generally, mainly in, in Victoria, but some from interstate, coming to study in, in Melbourne-based uh, institutions. And they 
have, are assigned a, a, they get they get some scholarship money, but they also get the mentoring of an indigenous mentor and a, a family a club family that act as their mentor for the full duration of their studies. We've had 30 people go through that program and there are 10, a cohort of 10 currently at university on that program and they support one another and that's a wonderful program which we're looking to uh, grow nationally. Peter, that is uh, so comforting to hear uh, what comes out of the fundraising that you do. Great camaraderie obviously and working at the the Camberwell market but also such uh, generating such uh, good things, good outcomes, and Rotary is about outcomes. You know, I, I always say, never let the bureaucracy overshadow the outcome. And certainly, in terms of Baldwin, that has been happening. You might care to tell us before we take a little break, what what roles have you had uh, both at your club and the district? Yeah, well, look, uh, when I joined, Dan, I I was very compelled. I've travelled a lot with my work, <coughs> pardon me, and I've always felt that. Um, I would not have joined Rotary if it only existed in Australia. I would have, I only joined because it's Rotary International. To me, it's the uh, humanitarian movement of the world that's making the biggest difference. And, and as you said, if we're not making a difference, why be in it? So to me, I, I find it and, and increasingly effectively in that role. When I joined, I went straight on to the International Committee and a couple of years later, I was the International Director in my club for a couple of years and that led to... Uh, President-elect and, and nominee and uh, president uh, in 2011-12 within my club. When I finished that period, I had a year off and uh, um, went back to club activities, which I was active in a whole range of projects. Um, but I then took the opportunity to put my name forward as an assistant governor because I felt my business experience and my executive coaching uh, naturally fitted to an assistant governor role. And that was in Ross Butterworth's uh, uh, leadership as district governor. And I was very pleased to do that. I was assigned the Beachside Cluster, which includes the, the Brighton Clubs, uh, the, at that stage Brighton, Brighton Beach and Brighton North, and also also Glen Ira and Caulfield. And they are wonderful clubs, very diverse. And as an assistant governor, you all of a sudden you see, as I know you, you have been, um, the diversity and how, in the case of Caulfield, how... 10 dedicated individuals with the support of their community can broker incredible projects, you know, and yet a large club like Brighton is able to do things that no other club does, you know, get 500 people to a fundraiser, organise an Australia Day swim or whatever. They, all the clubs are doing their own individual projects. Yes, they make a difference in different ways, don't they? Exactly. Well, Peter... How has the start to your district governor's year been? Well, very good, Ian. We're sort of getting up towards halfway. Um, and uh, I know all the clubs are experiencing their own cycle, if you like, as we all go through the Rotary annual cycle. And uh, this is one of the interesting things that we, we start off in, in the Rotary year with a new team every year in all the clubs and also at the district. So there's a high sense of anticipation which is raised as we reflect in our changeovers um, on the year that's passed and look forward to the year ahead. So Rotary has its Christmas period really in the middle of the year but uh, uh, we're halfway through the delivery side of the year now. And Peter, the role of District Governor involves you visiting uh, progressively and usually in the first half 
uh, all the Rotary Clubs. How many have you done to date? <laughs> We're almost there. It's a bit like the kids in the back seat. We're almost there. We've got one. Our final, our final club visit is uh, Brimbank Central on Wednesday this week. So, so basically. Um, we're completed. So what a phenomenal effort. And that is how many clubs, Peter? 65. Excellent. Absolutely excellent. Uh, you know, the work that district governors put in always uh, just amazes me. And, and listeners, it's not just this year because Peter has been in training as district governor nominee and district governor-elect and now as district governor. So when he finishes his year in June 2018... He will have effectively compete, completed three years of very, very dedicated service uh, at the head of uh, District 9800. Uh, so it's a wonderful effort. How have you found the travelling around Melbourne? I suppose there's nowhere... And Bendigo, where you go. I suppose there's nowhere now, Peter, that you don't know how to get to. Uh, <laughs> well, and you wouldn't have to use your sat-nav, I'll bet now. <laughs> well, sometimes some of the, the meetings are, are obscure places and we use the sat-nav to make sure we get there on time. But look, the, uh, there is a lot of visiting going on. I was, I was talking to uh, Anne White uh, at, at a function the other day and she said that in her year as district governor she had 350 events and that the second half of the year is busier than the first half. So I'm looking forward to that. But uh, we've probably done 150 uh, events counting you know, 25 changeovers as well as the club visits and many other Rotary events. But look, it's a privilege. I'm, I'm in the fortunate position that I... I can uh, do this because I'm retired and I really think that it's something we do have to look forward uh, towards in regard to this model has been sustainable. And part of the work that I'm starting to get involved in uh, Rotary Australia and New Zealand now is looking at redefining some of those roles uh, uh, to make them a bit more achievable by people who are still working, to be honest, because it is a, a large commitment and for a large district like our own, the largest in Australia, it does involve quite a lot of personal time. And Peter, you would have formed some very clear ideas of what you wanted to prioritise in your year. Uh, what were your main areas of focus and, and aims for this rotary year that you're now in? Yeah. Um, there, every uh, district in the world has the opportunity to form its own focus areas um, we do try and encourage at the district level and at the club level that presidents and district governor in the what we call the G train, the governor train, work together to have a single agreed uh, plan because essentially you won't get any sustainable change if you uh, try and bring something in that's not supported by your successor and your predecessor. You probably. need continuity, don't you? You need continuity. And for a number of years now in our district, our uh, focus has been, on, number one, on membership. Membership is an outcome, though. It, membership is a result of doing all the right things. But the point is that an organisation, it's as fundamental as survival, that if an organisation shrinks, it's, it's going to be less effective in the future. And the needs of the world are growing. They're not shrinking. The world is growing. Our population is growing. A million people have moved to Melbourne in the last 10 years. And yet our membership has been flat or slightly declining. Not just in our district, but in all of Australia, all New Zealand, all of the US, all of Europe. All the developed countries of the world have declining membership in Rotary. 
and not just Rotary, but I'm in a golf club. Golf clubs have declining membership. Any membership organisation which defines itself around a club environment is going to be reducing in effectiveness. So you have to change the model. That's really what we're at. You have to do things differently and recognise that younger people, anyone under the age of 50, I'm talking about as younger people, given the average Rotarian is 71 in Australia, um, anyone 50 or under is going to want a different model. They might still want the friendship of, of a Rotary club, but they'll decide what, how long they'll be involved in the club. They may want to work. Some people don't want to join clubs at all. They might just want to join Rotary and do good in the world. And they might only focus on one area, like early childhood development in terms of uh, literacy, um, in terms of health, maybe against act acting against uh, malaria, or some other what's called cause-driven volunteering. So we've had to rethink. So low membership is the big focus. It's also fundamentally looking at why people join Rotary and why they stay in Rotary as well. So it's retention and gain, yep. which are key factors in membership, uh, as you explain. Specifically, Peter, what do you think clubs have got to do? In a general sense, they've got to be open to change. They've got to be welcoming. I guess it's funny because um, I would say within 10 or 15 minutes after Anne and I arrive at a club in our visits, we get, a, we get a sense of whether that club is welcoming to people. And it's not just to the DG. I, th I can see it with other guests and I can see it in terms of is it just a, a social group that meet and do good and they, they're closed off to the rest of the people or you know other people or are they actively... Um, engage with community and inviting friends and inviting all, all embracing all embracing yes 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 and I think that's very very important and, and hopefully the majority of clubs certainly that you've visited have had that aura about them well when, look when I was in San Diego in January this year doing my district governor elect training um, this was obviously this is the highest priority in Rotary worldwide so we're all on the same page and all the ones that I was in the English uh, speaking sections, which is primarily the developed countries, but it does include um, languages not catered for as a first language who choose second language English or third language. But the district governors I spoke to were all facing that same issue and we were encouraged to think of our clubs into, in three different categories. Those that were doing well, those that were sort of okay, and then the clubs that were in trouble. And we were asked to think about, you know, which category our district's clubs were in. And then obviously think about providing support for those clubs that are, are in trouble. Um, but also leverage and extend out of the clubs that are doing well. So if a club is going well, it's a welcoming place, they're doing great projects, use those clubs to broker new satellite clubs, uh, which might grow into full clubs over time get them to grow in membership because nothing breeds success like success and yet at the same token you've got to support clubs that are struggling and sometimes clubs don't know how to go about the change they need to make so in our district um, under Philip Archer and Neville John we've set up a club support mechanism with um, uh, you know Warwick Cavell and other people who are available to support clubs that realise that they've got an issue and they want support 
So it's very, uh, very self-sustaining. Uh, well, that's the objective to be self-sustaining, but they need a little bit of help along the way to I'm get not, to that I'm, to I'm, that level of self-sustainability. Yeah, and often there's a debate within a club: do we want the old or do we want the new? And and um, a circuit breaker of, of 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 a process that is reviews what what are the rituals of the club? Are they necessary? Um, I had somebody say to me the other day, why would you say grace when we're a non-religious organisation? Why would we uh, sing, you know, God Save the Queen in the past or Advance Australia Fair um, when we're an international organisation? We're a local club within an international organisation. There is no Rotary Australia. So if we if we take the internationality of it and the non-denominational aspect of it, if we want to be welcoming to a wider demographic, then sometimes we have to challenge some of those traditions. We do, and a lot of clubs have and are doing their own thing. They may on a special occasion have the Australian National Anthem. Australia Day. That's right, but on a week-to-week basis, uh, Peter, they may not. Uh, And I think that's the important thing, that clubs have got to work their own way through that with support from those individuals that you mentioned. I also should say, like you correctly identified, that it's not only attracting new members but it's retention because retention equals engagement. If members are in a club and they sort of feel like they've done their bit or they're not really engaged, then they they will drift away from the club. And some of that is natural. Uh, uh, joining Rotary isn't a life sentence. You know, it, it, We shouldn't be disappointed if somebody joins Rotary as an active Rotarian for five years and then through change of family circumstance or whatever, they leave Rotary, if they leave on good terms and it's their choice and they'll be an advocate for Rotary anyway and they'll have made their contribution. So I'm not saying it's a life sentence, but we do often find that people drift away from clubs because they lose engagement. There's no one in the club who's really reaching out to them and making positive changes to make their Rotary experience better. Last uh, year, or uh, sorry, coming into this Rotary year, I asked for a list of all the Rotarians that have joined our district in the last three years. We have just on 2,400 members currently and 800 people of those 2,400 have joined in the last three years. That's an incredible number. That's a third of all the Rotarians in our district have joined in the last three years. And we also know that the same number have left. So retention is also important as well as as well as, and the same factors that make a club a, a fun place to be, enjoyable, engage with its community, will attract new members, also engages your current members. But with your people that have joined, half the people who leave Rotary leave in the second and third year, so you need to, in, in, in a club, be focused on the people after the first year of just sort of soaking it up. Are they actively engaged in their second or third year? If they're not, they'll go. Very important stuff and a very good lesson for clubs there, Peter, to be aware of. Peter, just talking about the international organisation of Rotary and really uh, what happens internationally, um, how do you think the Rotary International Organisation as a whole in terms of what it's done, for instance, with polio yep. uh, to help eradicate polio, what do you think it needs to do as an organisation in the next phase of its activities to be of more relevance in our world? 
Uh, there are other causes. Polio has now been reduced radically, uh, except I think into, into two countries. But what, what is the next phase of what they can do to be more relevant? Yeah, look, I think there is that debate going on at the moment within Rotary. Um, there is a strategic planning group that are trying to develop the sort of forward focus over the next 10 or 15 years for Rotary. We do the, have to recognise that polio has been a unifying external uh, project that, could, that everybody could relate to. I mean, if you think of the track record there without sort of going over it, we have um, provided incredible benefit to children of the world. Essentially, there are 16 million children that don't have polio today and one and a half million of those are alive today because of the polio vaccination. And there are many other beneficiaries. They've been adding vitamin C to the polio vaccine in the last uh, nine years, and that saved another million lives. So the vaccination programs have been the most important public health intervention worldwide and are now recognised so, so by all the governments of the world. So this little project that started out of Australia you know, over 30 years ago, um, has ended up being the most important public health uh, initiative in the world. And its lessons from it are being applied in many other areas. But as it reaches its natural conclusion over the next three, four years, hopefully, as the number of cases drop, and then eventually we have no cases for three years in a row, then the World Health Organisation will declare the world polio free. Obviously, people are asking already, even though that's three or four years away, what's going to be our next project? And I think the wisdom around says, we're not going to be on another 30-year journey, <laughs> which has taken so much effort. Um, we're going to be working in a range of different areas. I don't think there'll be any one thing that comes out of it, because really, there are so many big topics in the world that Rotary needs to be relevant to individuals and needs to be active in a number of areas. There are there are certain areas already that Rotary is working on in a in a regional sense. Uh, uh, you know, Rotarians against slavery, which is not yep. well known that today slavery does exist in many countries, uh, and of course malaria, which is still a, a, a huge, massive uh, yep. disease uh, in uh, especially uh, some Asian countries. Whether they become the focus of Rotary is, of course, another thing. But whatever it is, Rotary will be there and make a decision on its major priority, won't it? Yeah, it will. And I think also one we never we haven't one of the focuses this year with Ian Risley being the world president, he's put the environment back on the uh, on the on yes, the map as well. Yes. Because particularly if you're trying to be relevant to a younger generation, then essentially they know that all the big issues of the world are above any nation's ability to deal with it, whether it's climate change, uh, plastic in the environment, um, access to water, which tends to go across uh, national boundaries, and um, if it's disease prevention, as, as we just talked about. Um, you know, these are transnational issues that no government, no matter how powerful in the world, can solve by themselves. And also, because we don't have a transnational world government, the United Nations is very effective in some areas, but there is no real government authority. It can only be brokered by people who worry about things and are represented across the world. And Rotary is one of those few organisations that has access to government, has you know kind-hearted but very well-respected Rotarians in each of the countries that you want to work in that can tackle some of these big-ticket issues.
Peter, uh, in previous interviews uh, with the immediate past Rotary International President John Germ and more recently with our very own Australian Rotary International President Ian Risley, we've asked a similar question. And that question has been, at the conclusion of your year, what would you like Rotarians to say about you um, and your achievements? So I'm going to ask you that same question. What would you like Rotarians in District 9800 to say about Peter Frew's achievement as District Governor in his year, this year? This year. Well, I guess, Ian, I'm coming at it from a little different viewpoint. I don't believe that the year belongs to any one person, whether it's Ian Risley, myself, or the club president. You don't have to be modest, Peter. No, 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 no. I want to put this out there because I, I think it's a lot of the, the, the chop and change that takes place in Rotary is when people get a little ahead of themselves and think it is their year, to be honest. I don't see that as so. I am just, uh, when I told you I ran with East Melbourne Harriers, I wasn't much of an individual runner, but I did run in, in a school-based team that won the uh, Victorian All High School uh, 100 metres relay. And uh, I was just runner number two. And when I was given the baton by the person before me, I ran like hell and gave it to the person ahead of me. And overall, we got a good result because we worked closely together. That's what it is about. I don't have any aspirations for anything for my year for me. What I have aspirations for is that 2017-18 in our district, all the clubs are moving in the right direction. As a team. As a team. And they're working together as a team at the club level that the presidents have got a president-elect and a president-nominee to work with and that they're focused on a team outcome because it's a team game. We're in, it, it, not only is Rotary a people business, but it's a team sport. It's, there is no room for individuals in a team sport. Um, all right, some people might be a staff full forward or something. I don't put myself in any of those categories. I'm just one of the people, captain coach, I might be captain coach this year and then I pass on to Bronwyn next year and grant the year beyond. So that's my objective. Neville had a very uh, good, Neville John last year had a very good way. He wanted every club to be stronger at the end of the year. And if every club's stronger at the end of the year, then then the district is stronger at the end of the year. So that's what I'm focusing on as well. Peter, a very fine point to end on, a fine note. It's very modest of you, but uh, it's a very, very good attitude to have that you want good things to happen for the district as a whole and uh, I admire you for that. This evening on the Rotary and Community Service Radio Show, it really has been a great pleasure to talk with you uh, and I'm very sure that every Rotarian in District 9800 wishes you and Anne the very best continuing success in this the 2017-18 year. Thank you for being with us. Well, thanks very much, Ian, and thanks for giving me the opportunity to to talk to you and to other people. Thank you for listening to this podcast. This podcast was produced and presented by Ian Salick of Rotary District 9800 in Victoria, Australia. Podcasts can be found on iTunes by searching for Rotary Radio, then scrolling to Doing Good in Victoria.